0: Have you ever had a particularly intense, uptight kind of friend or maybe a family member to whom you would like to say, You know, not everything is a matter of life and death. A couple of years ago, a lighthearted little book sold quite a few copies. It was entitled, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, subtitled, And It's All Small Stuff. Well, there's a place, I suppose, for such comfort soup for the soul, but my friends, it is just as important, even more important, to acknowledge that some things are a matter of life and death. Biblical truth is a matter of life and death. Being a follower of Christ is a matter of life and death. For several weeks now, we've been studying this epistle of Paul to the Philippians. No preacher, I think, in 2,000 years, no Bible scholar I know of, has ever addressed the letter to the Philippians without acknowledging that its theme is one of joy. We've entitled our own series of sermons, Joy in the Journey, Peace for the Day. Not as clever as don't sweat the small stuff. But then again, that's not what Paul's inspired message is at all. What he writes about is a life and death matter. The apostle talks a lot about death, even when he's telling the Philippian Christians time and again, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, as he does there in chapter 4 and verse 4. Paul has made amazing spiritual progress since that day on the Damascus Road when Christ spoke from heaven and called him into the ministry of the gospel. So radical has been his journey that he can talk about joy unspeakable and the prospects of death all in the same sentence. Last Lord's Day, we came as far as chapter 1 and verse 20 of Philippians, where At the close of that text, we heard the apostle declare, I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For Paul, his commitment to Christ's glory and the sharing of the gospel is a life and death matter. He is intense about this. And no one had better try to convince him that being a follower of Christ is just small stuff. That he not sweat the details of his discipleship. Sometimes we hear people say, I have a life verse and it's found in such and such a place in the scriptures. But Paul would say, I have a life and death verse, and it's found in my joyful letter to the Philippians at chapter 1 and verse 21, where we begin today's consideration. He writes, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I remember seeing a highlighted dessert on a restaurant menu, It was called Death by Chocolate. Ever heard someone try to describe a particular delight and say, Oh, you have to try this. It is to die for. (laughs) That's not far from the kind of emotion the apostle is expressing here, but far more serious. It has in it an eternal weight of glory. For me, it's Christ. Oh, he is to die for. He is to live for as well. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In fact, we will discover that living and dying for Christ is something more than a draw in Paul's sense of values. He says, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. To the Roman believers, he wrote something very similar when he declared, whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. In another place, you remember how he explains that the sting of death has been swallowed up in victory because of the resurrection of Christ. Because he lives, we shall live also. Talk about life and death matters The biblical theology both allows Paul to serve Christ no matter what. If I live a while longer, it's all about serving Christ and his church. If I die, I die. In fact, if I had the power to choose and wanted to be selfish about it, I'd go right now and be with Jesus. That's better than anything in this world. Today, we'd say certainly it is more meaningful and significant than death by chocolate. Well, with that particular setting, let's read a portion of the larger context we will be looking at, verses 21 through to the end of chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too God, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Let's pray together at this time. Heavenly Father, we sit here in padded pews in an air-conditioned sanctuary in a place of freedom and safety. It is all too possible that we have not been impressed lately with the life and death matters of what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. We are 2,000 years away from Paul's experience in a Roman jail, 2,000 years away from our persecuted brothers and sisters that once lived and died in Philippi. But we would not think for a moment that you have called us to live for you without it costing us something. You have said to every generation that your children will, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom. The subtle powers of this world's values, the deceiving nature of our own indwelling sin and Satan himself are our great adversaries. These forms of very real threat and persecution arise every time we begin to get serious about our commitment to Christ. So help us to learn from the apostle. Follow the example of the Philippian brothers and sisters to live in such a way that we view life as opportunity and death as an ultimate victory. We ask in Jesus' conquering name. Amen. And we've already noted that Paul places life and death on a level playing field for the Christian, and that in fact, for the true believer, life and death are actually on the same team, bringing us along to our ultimate destiny. With the matter of life and death a settled issue, the only remaining concern that Paul has, as we will see here, is these two things. Number one, his present life. He wants to be fruitful, as it says there in verse 22, until he does go home to be with Christ. Secondly, the progress, verse 25, the progress of the church is on his heart, his concern for the fellow believers there. I love this simplicity of this life view. By simplicity, I don't mean easy, but I do think that having a simple focus on life is so very helpful. Paul says, if I die, well, I'm in a better place, a far better place. But if I live, I want to be fruitful, specifically fruitful in contributing to the progress and joy of other Christians. To everything else beyond these two things, I can hear him saying to us, don't sweat the small stuff. This is a display of human pathos at its best. It has a Shakespearean quality to it. Sort of like, hark, I have a reason for living. The reason is fruitful labor. Note it's not a comfortable retirement, but rather fruitful labor that motivates him to get up every morning even if he has to ask the guard to allow him a bathroom break. We said last week that confinement was no detriment to his usefulness for the Lord. It shouldn't be for us. Some of the guards were being converted and you will remember that the members of Caesar's own household are converted. All of Rome gets evangelized. Talk about fruitful labor. And all of it done while yet in chains. Have you asked the Lord lately what he would have you do in order to be fruitful in Christ-like behavior? Don't start listing the areas of your limitation. It's amazing what godly saints have accomplished even in their confinement, even from beds of affliction. If you are a child of God and you are still breathing... He has a purpose for your being here. Even if you did one Christ-like thing a day, you would discover reason enough to stay a while longer. Be a blessing. And like Paul, there will be joy in the journey and peace for each day. Staying around a while longer. Paul sees an opportunity to make progress in his own labors. He's just laying up more treasures in heaven. But quite unselfishly, he rejoices in the opportunity to contribute significantly to the progress of other believers. One contemporary paraphrase of verses 25 and 26 reads beautifully. I'll read it going back to verse 24. And I quote, sometimes I want to live and sometimes I long to go and be with Christ. That would be far better for me, but it is better for you that I live. I am convinced of this, so I will continue with you so that you will grow and experience the joy of your faith. Then when I return to you, you will have even more reason to boast about what Christ has done for me. Now as we move on, we have the unique opportunity to discover what Paul would define as fruitful labor, what it looks like in the life of his students. This is a kind of outline, I think, for Discipleship 101. Christ has called the apostle to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. He has called every believer to the task of teaching others, to become believers, having become converts, then to observe all the things that Christ has commanded, the whole counsel or word of God, actually. How does one assess whether such labors have been fruitful? Well, I think the answer lies in these next verses. Verse 27, the apostle will have had fruitful labor when he hears that they are living a life, quote, conducting themselves as people worthy of the gospel of Christ. People who have heard and believed the gospel know that it came to them in the very midst of their unworthy walk. While we were yet sinners, no one has ever received the gospel of grace by earning it on their own merits. The gospel of their salvation simply said, believe. Trust in the merits of Christ alone, apart from any works you have or could ever do. But now that you have received this mercy and grace... So order your lives in such a way, or the way you would if grace was something you did have to earn. Every sinner's testimony is basically the same. It goes something like this. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. And whatever good you see in me today is just my response to more of his grace day by day. But someone should be able to look at you and say, if a person could conduct themselves in such a way as to get saved, this is how they would live. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Prove that you really have been saved by grace alone, by your changed life. For the grace that saves you is the grace That enables you to walk in a manner as though you were worthy of the Lord. Do you have that? I hope you do. Furthermore, Paul's fruitful labor will show up if he hears or actually gets to see them. Verse 27, standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Biblical discipleship is often seen as a one-on-one relational kind of thing. People sometimes say, I'm discipling John, or I'm meeting once a week to disciple Mary. Now, that's a blessing indeed, and God uses such efforts to strengthen his children one by one. But I think it is vitally important to see that Paul's spirit-wrought model of discipleship is something accomplished by fundamentally addressing the church as a whole, corporately, the one body of Christ gathered. I fear that in the spirit of our age, a lifestyle of radical individualism has invaded even our Christian thinking. We have lost our sense of being vitally connected to one another as a whole. Professing Christians today may talk much about their own walk with the Lord. They may concern themselves with what they call personal holiness. Now, all that is good. I wouldn't dare discourage that. But notice how Paul believes that the discipleship of believers must promote a spirit of unity with others. There is a corporate identity. There is, I believe, even a corporate godliness that ought to describe every local assembly of a true church of Jesus Christ. Every individual has the great privilege of being identified with Christ, but at the same time, such a wonderful position places us in a spiritual union and identity with every other Christian. Again, that's best expressed in a local assembly of believers. You say you are a follower of Christ? Well, the next legitimate question ought to be, to what church do you belong? As we reread verse 27, I want you to see the corporate emphasis in two phrases. Together standing firm in one spirit and striving together. This is the real e pluribus unum, if you will. Out of many is one, or from many comes one. In that uh, pregnant Latin phrase, e pluribus unum, there is no diminishing of the individual. Every one with certain inalienable rights, yes. But the high calling of the many is to become the one. This is God's will for his individual children, that out of his many children, they subjugate themselves for the high calling of being one body in Christ. You know, my friends, if the spirit of the age is one of individualism, let the church be countercultural. Yours and my identity as a Christian should be that we are a group. Today we would say we are a team. You know, the hurricane season is upon us, like Many of you, I turned to the Weather Channel about a week ago. The next thing I knew, I was hearing the familiar voice of Jim Cantore. The company had sent him all the way to Hawaii to get blown around in the wind. A few years ago, he was doing his thing right here in Florida. Hurricane Charlie rearranged his hair and raincoat, you'll remember. What caught my attention was Jim Cantore's enthusiasm for the weather. Over the howling winds, he signed off by passionately saying, we are here and we will be wherever you need us to be to know what you need to know. He was expressing a wonderful level of corporate identity and unity. You could tell he was glad To be wearing the weather channel emblem on that cap of his. As if to say, we are standing firm in the wind, caring for you. You knew that he was a man on a mission. And you knew he was one member joined with a whole team. Paul disciples the Philippian believers to have a very similar passion. Get your minds around the same thing, he says. Get on the same page with one another about what's important. Stand firm in the winds of adversity, striving together for the welfare of the gospel message in our day. Verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent... I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, locked arms, if you will, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Understand that that term faith, as in faith of the gospel here, is Paul's shorthand way of saying the body of truth, all the doctrines of grace, the right theology of scripture. No wonder that in another place Paul refers to the church as the ground and the pillar of the truth. Now the final three verses here, 28 through 30, is Paul's caution and encouragement to them. Take your stand for Christ and for his truth and you will surely face opposition. But do not be alarmed, he says. That is actually a blessing from the Lord because it proves You belong to him, and that in fact you are sharing with me, Paul says, in the same kind of conflict you have seen me endure with great boldness and even joy. The blessing when encountering opposition because of your commitment to Christ, I think, is a twofold nature. Verse 28: one, it is a sign of judgment, he says, for those who oppose you. And secondly, It is a sign of true salvation for those, for Christ's sake, who are being opposed. It's all from God, he says. So don't be distressed. When the issues of life and death have been resolved and they are in Christ, the rest is, well, small stuff. But Paul would say very wonderful stuff. In no way alarmed by your opponents which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Just this week we received a message from Mark and Ruth Harbour, our missionaries in Taiwan, they wrote to tell us a chilling story and to ask prayer for the family of a recent convert there. His name Chin Papa. Coming to faith in Christ in Taiwan has its dangers. Chin, the only Christian in his family, was severely beaten by his own son. The harbors tell us that Chin languished with the wounds and internal bleeding for six days, and then he died. The Harbors have tried, mostly in vain, to get civil authorities involved in the murder. They ask prayer for their own safety, since this family is the closest neighbor to the Tao Xing Seminary, where Mark teaches, and many of the brave seminary students live. So do not think that taking a stand for Christ was only a costly thing in Paul's day 2,000 years ago. And do not think that your own commitment will not cost you in some way. But do let us be of one mind, striving together for the gospel and all the truth of God's word. Because this is a Christian's progress. Our fruitful labor So let us prove that for us, as it was for Paul, to live is Christ, and to die would be only gain. Amen.